Uh, Michael Osterlink here with uh, Dan Grazier from the Project on Government Oversight, also called POGO. Welcome back, Dan. Hey, it is good to be here, Michael. So I uh, had you on over a year ago talking about the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, and all the troubles that that program was having. Uh, cost overruns, various aspects of the program not working or functioning properly, including some of the uh, variants not working in certain weather conditions, the helmet not working, hypoxia for some of the pilots, et cetera, et cetera. A wide variety of troubles. Since then, uh, trying to keep up with the R-35 is kind of schizophrenic-inducing. I, I will read reports, some from the Department of Defense itself, saying how wonderful the program is going. It's, it's succeeded in, in various uh, reaching certain goals and milestones. Then I read other reports also from our same government, uh, questioning those same reports from the Department of Defense. Uh, then you'll read the popular press or some of the military writers and also kind of a mixed bag. You'll see how wonderful the F-35 is, all the troubles are behind it. And you'll see other writers talking about all the troubles that we still have with it, including new problems that have been discovered, as well as increasing number of cost overruns. So, Dan, where are we with the R-35? Well, the program is still certainly troubled. Uh, not much has changed since the, the, the last time you and I talked about that. Uh, it, it, the, the program's plodding along, but it looks like, uh, at least with the, the latest budget proposal, that... Uh, it has survived its, uh, um, its at least political trial by fire. Uh, right now, the, the Senate version of the NDAA that's going into, that's going into conference uh, has us purchasing uh, 94 F-35s in the next budget round. Uh, and, or this the, is the next... fall of uh, 2017, fiscal right. year 18 is what you Fiscal year 18, about. yeah. And uh, that's, that's quite the victory, and that's, uh, I'll tell you, that's a very large um, batch for a low-rate initial production, uh, which is what the F-35 program is still, at least officially, uh, in right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the big thing. We're still buying these, these aircraft at, a, at an alarming rate, and they still haven't finished the development process. Like, the design of the F-35 has still not been ironed out. And even more importantly, the F-35 program has not even begun the, the very rigorous operational test and evaluation period that needs to take place before a decision about full rate production can really be made. And that process, again, that process hasn't even started. It's not even uh, projected to start at least until next year, uh, but possibly even later than that. And even after it starts, it's going to take a couple of years even for it to for that process to play out. Uh, and only at the end of that combat testing process, the operational testing process, can uh, a fully informed decision about the effectiveness and suitability of F-35 can be uh, determined. Yeah, it might be actually good to step back and let's compare and sure. contrast a non-F-35 uh, uh, fighter aircraft and how a normal process would work. Because it seems to me like you, you want to test all your assumptions, you want to make a, a, a prototype that actually works, test it out completely before you mass produce it. 
Is that usually how it works? Well, that's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> that's the what you're talking about is the the fly before you buy concept. And let's just talk a little about a little bit of history and to to give you a good example of that. The uh, two really good programs that followed that process were the the lightweight fighter program that eventually produced uh, resulted in the F-16 and uh, the AX program, which eventually resulted in the A-10 program. And the way that those two programs worked when the, the need for a new aircraft was determined, uh, teams got together in the services and, and inside of Pentagon, and they came up with the basic requirements uh, for it. And, and famously, the, the requirements document for, the F, for what became the F-16 was only 25 pages long. And, um, but that got turned into a request for a proposal. It went out to a bunch of contractors, um, and it was, uh, what, McDonnell Douglas and uh, General Dynamics came back and, uh, and submitted their designs. And it was the YF-16 and the YF-17. And, and it was about two years after that request for, went out, they, they had working prototypes that were ready to go for a competitive fly-off process. And famously in that program, and we're talking about the, the early to mid-1970s when this, when this happened, uh, and the, the competitive fly-off process, most famous, this one was, uh, uh, was accomplished not with test pilots, but with actual combat pilots. Uh, guys who weren't didn't have uh, all the all their all their checklists of maneuvers that they needed to accomplish. Like these were actual fighter pilots uh, that were up there jerking on the stick and flying the plane around and putting it through its paces. And and all of them that it, and and they all flew flew both aircraft. Uh, and they all unanimously came back and said that the F-16 or the YF-16 was the better aircraft. And so, and that was the one that was, that was decided on. And the other one ended up, uh, getting modified and became the F-18, uh, mm-hmm. later on down the road. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a competitive fly-off that actual operational pilots flew the plane and then they made the determination. And what was really interesting about that was the, uh, on paper, most people uh, who were the, the aviation experts, they looked at, at at the designs on paper, and they thought the YF-17 was going to be the better mm. design. Uh, but it was only when they got the planes flying up in the air that they realized that there were some some definite subtle advantages with the with the other design, and it made it a better better aircraft. You also mentioned the A-10. I think it might be instructive to talk a little bit about that aircraft, since the Air Force has wanted to replace the A-10 with the F-35. Talk a little about the A-10, and then we'll use that as a transition back to talking about the failures of the F-35 as a replacement for the A-10, and then other troubles with the F-35. Sure. Well, the the, the A-10 is the only aircraft in in history that was purposely built to be a ground attack aircraft, and uh, you know for that for that close air support mission. And other aircraft have been really good at it, but they were designed for other things. Uh, uh, Beforehand, and they were later on adapted to to work in the close air support role. But the A-10 was purposely designed from the from the very beginning to be a ground attack aircraft, and and that's what makes that it makes it such a unique and such an effective aircraft. And it was born not out of out of 
uh, technical requirements. It, you know, that's the way a lot of aircraft, like the F thirty five, right now are designed. Where it's, hey, we have, we want to, we, we're gonna, we, we want an aircraft, and we want to, we want it to have this technology, this technology, this technology, and this technology, and then they adapt it later on to actually perform missions. The A ten was all right. What is the close air support mission? They understood that, and then they took available technology and they designed the aircraft around that. So this is what the mission is. These are the mission requirements. All right, this is the technology we have. So how do we use that technology to meet those requirements? And that's what makes the A-10 so unique and, and such an effective aircraft. And that's why it has the, the fans that it has, because it's a combat-proven aircraft. And guys on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 15, 16 years have seen it in action. And they know how effective it is uh, for, for its intended role. Uh, Pogo actually hosted a, a conference maybe two, three years ago. It was a little bit before my time. Okay. But, yep. Yeah, on the uh, A-10. And you had some uh, both Marines... And uh, combat pilots, and both were strongly in support of the A-10. I do recall that. Yeah, and the it, it, it's rare for an aircraft to to kind of engender the the popular support that the A-10 has, and and that that I think that by itself is very telling, and because you you don't see that kind of um, you don't see that kind of admiration for an aircraft with. Even something like the F-16, which is a very effective aircraft, you don't see it with a you know with a B-1 or the B-2, where you have people making websites and in in Twitter handles to you know save the save the B-1. You know, I mean, and if you did, it would probably be the manufacturers or the politicians that have uh, that have the that aircraft based in its district. Like these are actual. Marines and soldiers that that fought on the ground that saw this thing in action that are trying to save it because they know that uh, either they or their brothers that are still going down range uh, their their lives are you know can be saved and the mission can be accomplished easier with the A10. So there has been pressure and it seems like it's worked for the short term to pressure the Air Force not to replace the A10 with the F35. Talk. Tell us a little bit about why the F-35 is, is incompatible with the CAS mission. Well, so there's a couple things involved in that. But the, the, one of the biggest ones is just the, the Air Force's, um, the way the Air Force intends to conduct close air support. And, and you will, I, I've, I personally listened to, to General Bogdan explain that during a, uh, during a congressional hearing uh, about a year and a half ago. And well, the the way the Air Force intends to conduct close air support is they have an aircraft that that's flying at about thirty thousand feet. Uh, they're using a whole bunch of electronics, uh, you know the um, the the EOTS, the the electro optical targeting system uh, on the aircraft, flying at you know, thirty thousand feet, trying to spot targets on the ground uh, and dropping precision ordnance from from those heights, and that's. The Air Force's idea of, of conducting close air support. Well, uh, I was a tank officer in the Marine Corps, so I understand ground warfare, and I and I've and I've personally conducted close air support missions with my tank company. And the way you do it, it the way the Air Force wants to do it is very complicated because we have to we have to like literally stop on the battlefield. My uh, my forward air controller has to throw electronics up on top of the tank, and I can show you pictures of this. Actually, has to throw up uh, a bunch of electronics on top of the tank to sight in to correlate the target with that aircraft. 
because the, the pilot can't see exactly what what my guy on the ground is seeing. And so they have to, um, the, the pilot, the F-35 pilot is going to have to spot that target with his electronics. And then, but he sees a different angle than my guy sees. And so they have to talk back and forth to make sure that the pilot is actually looking at exactly what my guy on the ground is looking at. Uh, so that's how they correlate that target. Now that's a delicate connection there. Uh, because you have to get the video feed and, you know, what happens when that video feed goes out. Because, you know, if you try to do the, the A-10 can do the same thing. They, they can drop targets from that high as well using generally the same system. Um, but if that system falls out, uh, then the A-10 can come down and the pilot can eyeball the target or I can mark the target with 50 caliber rounds. Uh, the F-35 pilot can't do that. So if that chain... Uh, of of the electronics cuts out uh, between my guy in the ground and the F-35, then the F-35 might not be able to drop for us. And I would have to imagine, and I think the Marine Corps actually just did a um, an event at Quantico looking at uh, cyber, cyber capabilities of our, in, in an asymmetrical uh, uh, space from our enemies, um, that, that, that disconnection is quite possible and probable actually uh, I, yes it's not it's not possible it will happen and because that's the you know it's a it's a big joke in the services about at least in the army and the marine corps uh about comm's going to fail you at exactly the moment that you need comm mm-hmm. and 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 the and the more sophisticated our communications get the more delicate the the, the systems get and the easier it is that they knock out which is like the navy is now going back to a paper Exactly. That, I mean, there's a reason that stuff works, mm-hmm. and and it's worked for a very long time. And you know, I've I've yet to I, I have a, a, a you know one of my favorite sayings is I've yet to see anybody hack a, a typewriter. And uh, you know, there's there there is something very simple about um, just talking over the radio, or you know, even um, you know, even even more simply, and this is something that an A10 pilot can do. Um, you know, maybe even those voice communications drop out. Well, you know, if the pilot's flying low enough, you can use a signal mirror uh, to flash the to flash the pilot just to get their attention. And then you can direct, you know, I, I can fire 50 cal rounds with tracers uh, okay. and they can spot a target that way and, and they can attack. But again, like you have to have a, an aircraft that's designed like the A-10 to be able to fly in low and slow uh, to do that kind of stuff. Basically, like a, a general principle with anything in, in, the, in, in military forces is um, you want your communications to be as implicit as possible, meaning that the less words you and I have to have to say across any kind of a uh, any kind of a communications network, the better. And the going back to the F thirty five and the in the close air support, the Air Force wants a very explicit level of communications to to make those connections. It's more words, more data that has to be transferred between the two. When, when what we really want to do is you want as, as little information as possible uh, that has to be passed between the two to accomplish the mission. All right, so we, we now know for sure <laughs> the, the uh, F-35 cannot, at this time, replace the capabilities of the A-10. But that's not the only limitations on the F-35. Uh, there are three variants, and there are troubles throughout uh, talk about some of the most recent troubles that uh, you're familiar with, um, including some of the cost overruns. Uh, and I know that there are also some concerns from our some of our allies who, as you earlier said previous to this recording, put all their eggs in the basket of the F-35 
and uh, are going to have to pay for that. Right. Well, so the, the, the biggest bit of news that's come out recently is uh, the, the new F-35 program executive officer, uh, Vice Admiral Winters, uh, has uh, recently floated the idea that the F-35As, uh, 108 F-35As, the Air Force conventional takeoff variants, um, might not be upgraded to their full combat capabilities. Now, this is something that we've warned about for years, uh, that the, the rush to production uh, of the F-35 before the development process and the testing process has been completed uh, is going to mean that the American people have spent billions of dollars buying aircraft that are not fully developed. What, what these aircraft are, they're essentially, they're very, very expensive prototypes. And now the, the program office in the Pentagon has been saying that, oh, well, those will be upgraded down the road once the development process is, the development and testing process has been completed. And this is the concurrency tax. The GAO has written about this, the, um, uh, the uh, cost assessment and program evaluation office has warned about this. The, you know, definitely the director of operational test and evaluation has warned about this. This is a well-known problem. It's called the concurrency tax of, of you buy these aircraft before they're completed and then later on, and you buy them, by the way, at full price here, and then later on you have to go back and you have to spend more money to upgrade them. It would be like buying an iPhone that hasn't been fully, that has been fully developed, but you pay full price for it, and then once it's developed, you go back and you pay Apple to upgrade the, the phone that you bought uh, at full price before. Are there any other weapon systems uh, that uh, have followed that model? Um, it's, a, it's a problem that, uh, that has been noted over the last you know, probably 40 years or so. Uh, I mean, it's something that, that does happen, like the, and, and even programs like the, uh, like the F-16 and the A-10, uh, as, as they've gone out to the fleet, uh, problems have been identified with the earlier models, and changes are later designed, you know, are later incorporated into, uh, into the subsequent models. Uh, but we haven't seen the level of concurrency uh, with uh, any of those programs that we do with the F-35 program. So there should be, at this point, no excuse for creating any other future weapon system based on this process. Right. Like, this is a well-known <laughs> problem. Like, we've seen this. And, and my, my biggest fear, and one of the reasons that, that we kind of jump up and down on the table warning everybody about this is, look, like, let's learn. All right, we made big mistakes with this. This program mm -hmm. has been going on. Uh, like, really, the F-35 program has its origins uh, back in the early 90s, or maybe even, you know, back in the early, in the, in the mid-80s is when people really started kind of talking about this. And, you know, so this program's 25 years down the road now, and, and we're still years away from it actually being combat effective to, the, to, to any extent that it, that it possibly can be. Um, but it's not going to be too long before, and there's already, you're already hearing rumblings about people talking about the, the follow-on program to the F-35. Well, hey, let's, you know, so we've made a lot of mistakes with the F-35 program. I think everyone would acknowledge that. I mean, even Frank Kendall, you know, called the F-35 program uh, acquisition malpractice uh, a couple years ago. So these, program, these problems are known. So let's make sure that we all learn these lessons. And so the next time we go through this, we don't make the same mistakes again. But unfortunately, I, I think that we probably will because we made these mistakes before. Is uh, anyone in the HASC or SASC? House Armed Services or Senate Armed Services Committee 
recognizing this as a problem and wanting to change the acquisition process so this never happens again? So there's two, there are two, two things with that. I think a lot of them recognize the problems with it, uh, but I don't think there's the will to actually make, uh, make any changes. Certainly, uh, you know, when have you seen uh, a significant number uh, of members vote against the F-35, like, you know, vote against throwing more money at the F-35 program? You don't, and, and until uh, Congress really wields its uh, the power of the purse with this, nothing's really going to change because they're going to because what we're doing, particularly you know with this latest budget request, uh, you know for money for ninety four new F thirty fives, you know that's reinforcing failure. I mean, there's really that sounds a little harsh, but there's really no other way to no no other way to think about it. So why don't you lay out a few more of the problems that we're facing with the F-35. Um, and I, I mentioned a few, and we might have talked a little bit about them before. There's, there's concerns around the helmet. There's concerns about oxygen availability for the pilots. There's some weather concerns. If I remember correctly, the Israelis uh, this last year uh, um, changed the date of their delivery because of weather. Um, the, they couldn't actually fly to Israel. What other type of problems like that or others should we be aware of? Well, another one that we found, uh, and it was uh, buried inside of the, the latest testing report, uh, is that the uh, you're, you're right, the F-35, has, uh, is, it can't fly within, I think it's 25 miles of, of a thunderstorm. Uh, how ironic is that? The, the lightning can't fly near lightning. Uh, and... Uh, but now we we found out that there's problems with uh, cold weather conditions too, uh, that they have a hard time uh, starting up the the F-35 in, in cold conditions, which it's a bit of a problem because we have squadrons stationed in Alaska, and so it's you know it, it it's those kind of things. The the, the helmet still uh, you know is, is still a problem. You know there's the there's the weight aspects. Uh, I mean it's a very it's a it's a heavy system, and so the um, the, the Navy pilots uh, that are flying the F-35Cs off of the off the aircraft carriers uh, have have noted uh, well they basically the, the the Navy evaluator said that it is not um, it is not suitable for carrier operations and I mean they've very explicitly said that this is not suitable for carrier operations it's in the it's in the, the latest uh, DOT and E report. And, and these are the Navy zone evaluators saying that. And, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that, um, you know, it was the, the way you launch an aircraft off an aircraft carrier. So it's the combination of that force. Uh, we have to, you have to uh, throttle the engine uh, and then they, they tie it down. And so when the, when the tie down bar is released and the, and the aircraft starts moving down, the, the nose bounces up and down. Well, you, you take that combined with the helmet and the pilot's head's getting slammed around to the point that he can't see because all the, all the information uh, that the pilot needs uh, about aircraft, you know, the speed and, and everything is displayed in his helmet. Well, that helmet only works when it's aligned properly on his head. Well, if it gets knocked down, then it's an yes. out of alignment. He can't see everything as well. So he has to do a couple things. They talk about having to cinch down the, the strap so he's strapped back in, a, you know, so the pilots are strapped back in their seats and, and now they can't reach 
everything that they need to be able to reach. It's those kind of things. And then when he when he get you know when when the pilots take off, you know he or she has to has to reach up and adjust his helmet, like take take their hands off of the controls to adjust the helmet on their head, like right at the most dangerous point in the in the flight as they're launching off the off the aircraft, the front of the aircraft carrier. So it's those kind of things. And these are all just uh, they're it's symptomatic of the of the bigger problem, which was hey let's. Uh, we're building this aircraft. Let's throw everything we possibly can into it. You know, this is a great idea. You know, the pilot needs to be able to see. So, how about we we put in this uh, distributed aperture system where we have all these cameras in the in the skin and we project the images in the pilot's head. Well, yeah, you could do that. Uh, that adds a whole lot of expense. That it's one more thing that's going to break on that aircraft. When the same problem of you got to get the pilot. The pilot has to be able to see what's going on in the world outside of, uh, outside of the aircraft. How about you put them up higher in the, in the aircraft, you give them a high bubble canopy, and, and let the pilot see everything with his eyeballs. Because guess what? Your eyeballs have a whole lot better resolution than that television camera does. And by the way, that your, your eyeballs can, can adjust closing, you know, they can, they can sense closing speeds and closing distance and that kind of stuff in a way that a two-dimensional camera cannot do. Yet. <laughs> You had mentioned combat effectiveness, and if I remember correctly, at least one of the variants was supposed to be combat effective by 2008. Yes. Uh. <laughs> that was the original plan. That was the original plan. It was, I, if I remember correctly, it was 2008 uh, for the Air Force, 2009 for the Marine Corps, and 2010 for the Navy. If I, remember, you know, I have to go back and, and don't, don't quote me specifically on that mm-hmm. one, but it's, it's, it's somewhere around there. Uh, when are they, Army, Marines... Uh, Navy claiming that each of their variants would be combat effective? Well, so the the Marine Corps uh, declared its variants uh, initially operational capable in 2015, and the Air Force made uh, its IOC uh, declaration last year. Uh, the Navy, if I remember correctly, is supposed to be next year at some point. They're supposed to declare IOC, but uh, you don't hear that much clamoring on the on the Navy side. Uh, about this, so but again, like the uh, as 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 I've said numerous times, the IOC declarations for all the services uh, just a public relations stunt. Uh, as the um, the the latest announcement by Admiral Winters about not upgrading those aircraft is very telling, and it basically is um, an admission that the aircraft. Uh, that are purchased are uh, they don't they aren't really combat capable and uh, because they were basically talking about leaving these aircraft as uh, the these concurrency orphans if they don't upgrade these aircraft uh, are um, nothing but trainers they're going to use them for for training aircraft is is the signals that we're getting about that well the the aircraft that the Marine Corps and the Air Force used to say are you know, combat capable uh, are in the same configuration. That's that. Okay. These are the aircraft that they're talking about. So, uh, yeah, that was you know, the the services set that deadline, set those deadlines uh, back in 2013, if I remember, uh, for the for this latest the 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 delayed uh, IOC declarations. Uh, and yeah, they they were definitely going to meet those. Uh, you know, come hell or high water. And because it would have been far too embarrassing for the program, uh, and it would have been very difficult for the services to go up to Capitol Hill and 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 justify further uh, further investments to, to buy more F-35s. If wait a second, you were originally supposed to declare IOC, uh, you know, 
in the last decade, and now you're, you haven't you, you missed this deadline too. So why should we continue throwing more money at this program? And that would have been way too uh, too embarrassing of an admission uh, if they'd missed those. So, but like you, there are other experts out there who point out that the declarations are pretty much BS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and well, you know, we just look at the simple fact that we're still at, at war. We're, I mean, we're still flying uh, combat missions over over Iraq and Syria right now, flying ISIS. It's not the F thirty five doing that. Libya. Yeah, okay. uh, I mean, it's not the F thirty five doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the 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 services just had their uh, recently had their first shoot down of an enemy aircraft, the first time in I forgot what was it, twenty five years or something like that, and. Uh, that was an F-18. It was a Navy F-18 that shot that down. It wasn't an F-22, and it was not an F-35. It was an F-18 that did that. And, and even, um, uh, you know, a really, uh, really great Air Force pilot, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Rankin, uh, he just shot down uh, a drone, and he did it with an F-15. So, I, again, not F-22s, not F-35s. You right, know, right. These are the legacy aircraft. Those are the ones that are still, that are still doing. They're still out there, you know, performing the missions. Pretty sad for the taxpayer and for the warfighter. Uh, Dan Grazier, thank you for your time. Uh, where can people more learn more about POGO? Well, you can come uh, to our website, uh, pogo.org slash Strauss. Uh, we're, we're posting stuff all the time. Uh, keep an eye on, on, uh, on the services, making sure that uh, they are producing actual effective uh, weapon systems for the men and women in uniform, and uh, they're, not, uh, they're not wasting your tax dollars. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.